So let's do this. Open up in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ezra. If you're new here, uh, typically we take books of the Bible and we read them. And we study them on Sunday mornings. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's probably a pretty good idea to have one. We do have them when you walk in. There's a little table back there. So grab a Bible, open up to the book of Ezra. That's where we're at. I wanna, um, I'm going to read a verse. Uh, we're going to basically read from verse... Now, today we're, we're going to read a couple verses first, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to read basically chapter 6, uh, beginning at about verse 16. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter by the end this morning. And uh, what I want to do is just kind of make some comments uh, in terms of historical background, and then I'll pray and we'll get to work on the larger passage of the text. So that's about it. Let's read chapter 6, beginning at about verse 16. Uh, we'll read 16 and 17. It says this. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered up this dedication to the house of God, a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and, a skin, and for a sin offering uh, for all of Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So what you're seeing here in the passage is you're finding that these people are actually having a celebration. It's a temple dedication. It's really a building dedication. They had completed the construction of this massive structure, which is called the temple. Um, to kind of understand why it needed to be rebuilt, you've got to go back a little bit. So I'll give you guys a little bit of a background for those of you that are new. Uh, the rest of this will be review. Or for those of you that have slept over the past few months, it'll be all brand new. So what has happened is the children of Israel, basically, they were taken off into exile. They were living in their land. They were taken off into exile by a country by the name of Babylon. Babylon basically were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, if you know your history. And the Medo-Persians basically uh, dominated the entire uh, empire that the Persians, or I'm sorry, that the Babylonians had. And at about, around the time of a reign of a guy by the name of Cyrus, uh, he basically issues an edict or a decree allowing exiled people groups to return back to their homes to basically repatriate their nations, to repopulate uh, their places of origin. It's a real big move. And uh, it really his reason for doing this was go back to your nation, here's some cash, go rebuild and, re, uh, rebuild and reestablish your, your, your people group. Uh, and as you reestablish the worship of your gods, just pray for me. Pray for me and my kids. Make sure that we've got a really, really long dynasty. That was his whole desire. So that happened. There's about 50,000 Jews that returned at the beginning stages of this return season. And they came back to Israel, and they had a heart and desire to basically rebuild the temple. The temple was the most important part of the Jewish people as a nation. And when they came back to begin to reestablish and rebuild the temple, they found that it was an easy. They had a lot of opposition. There's a lot of problems. There were a lot of um, um, digressions. There were a lot of uh, sinful temptations that had arisen. Uh, as with any work of God, anytime God begins to work, in your life, in a church, anywhere, there's always going to be sorts of distractions. Uh, we're going to always have temptations to be pulled away from the work of God. And so what happened, these guys had sort of succumbed to that. For the next 16 years, what they set out to do on their original mission had stopped. So about 16 years into doing nothing, God raised up two men. They're prophets. One was Haggai, the other guy named Zechariah. And these guys come on the scene, they basically begin to prophesy. They stir up the hearts and the emotions and the excitement 
of the people of Israel that had returned from exile, and they begin to build. And so within a few short, period, or a few short years, the temple basically begins to be rebuilt. It's a massive movement. I mean, it's a massive movement. What's happening is the people are excited. They're working hard. They're gathering together alongside of one of the main leaders of the entire group, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And then there's the uh, high priest, a guy by the name of Joshua. And then you've got the prophet. So you've got basically a kingly figure. You've got uh, the priest, Joshua. And then you've got the uh, prophets, prophet, priest, and king, basically all working together in this construction project of reestablishing sort of the broken down walls of the religious nature of the people of Israel. And finally, they finish the temple. It was a great day. So chapter 6, what we had just read, was the dedication of this temple. It was an amazing moment within their history. In fact, it basically launches uh, one of the most significant moments of Judah, uh, 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 Israel's history, a period called Second Temple uh, Movement. The second, second Temple Movement, which is after the Second Temple was built, there's this brand new fervor, brand new excitement for the Messiah, for God's power to come down. Uh, the children of Israel have no, at this particular point, they never go back into idolatry again, which is amazing, because prior to the Second Temple movement, they were always falling into idolatry. You just got to read like First Kings, Second Kings, Chronicles. You'll find they were always falling into idolatry. Well, after Second Temple movement, never again do they fall into idolatry. This is, an, this is really what you're seeing here is a move of God. God is at work, hearts are stirred, people are passionate, leaders are leading, priests are preaching, prophets are prophesying, God is at work. It's great. They're celebrating the dedication of this movement of God by the construction of the temple. Everybody's excited. Okay, I'm going to pray. We're going to get to work at the larger concept that's happening and the reason why I want to jump in from here is because what happens in just a few short hundred years, this movement of God digresses, it devolves to basically a monument. And we'll see what that means in just a moment here. So I'm going to pray and we'll get to work. Father, we just ask you this morning that you would open our eyes. You give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Lord, we realize that in our lives we are all prone we're all subject to getting off track. We're all prone to getting excited about something, and then a few weeks go by, we forget about it. And so, Father, we ask you right now that you would help us to just sort of take a closer look at this, to make certain that the work that you've begun in us, the work that you've begun in us as a church, as a movement, doesn't ever spiral out into a monument. So we just commit this morning in your hands. Give us grace. Help me to speak forth clearly your word. God, anything that's not for me, I pray that you let it fall by the wayside. Everything that is of you, I pray that you would just guard hearts, protect souls from, as Jesus said, the evil one who will come down and take the seed. So I pray that you just be glorified in this time in our moments that we have together here. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a look a little bit closer at sort of this life cycle of these movements, because Really what you see here and again in the Second Temple movement, or the beginning stages of this, goes on for a few hundred years. By the time you get to Jesus' time, which is about 500 years later, by A.D. 70, the temple's destroyed. All right? 
it gets even more interesting because, you know, prophecy buffs and people who focus on prophecy a lot, they tend to think that maybe there'll be a third temple which will be built. Possibly. I have no idea. It's possible. But the reality is, is by the time you get to the moment when Jesus comes back again, all right, Jesus comes back to earth and basically John's looking around in the book of Revelation. He's like, where's the temple? Where's the temple? Right? He's used to temple. He's a Jew. He's used to temple. God basically says, look, there is no temple. No temple, ever. There will never be a temple again. All right? The Lord will be the temple. All right? So it's kind of an irony to me that they spend all this time, all this energy, building something that really was not even meant or intended to last forever. And yet they pour money, pour energy, pour strength, pour tears, pour blood into this movement. Why? Because it's all part of God's movement. It's part of what God had them put their hands to to be a part of it. So it takes place, though, what I want to really try to understand is there's sort of this, this life cycle. Every movement has a shelf life. Every movement has a shelf life. And, and I want to really try to understand how this works, why it works, because what happens is we see traditionally in history, there are all these movements that start out, everything's great, people are excited about it, and everything sort of at some point fizzles out and dies. So I want to take a look at, real briefly, just sort of the, uh, the anatomy of this or why life cycle in movements happen. The first thing is I see in terms of a movement is it starts out just as that. It's a movement. And traditionally what you find in movements are you see uh, leaders. God raises up certain people. Somebody has a particular desire or a passion or a calling or they have a vision for something and they rise up like Nehemiah and they see a need that needs to be done so they... Uh, expend energy, they raise funds, they gather people, and they're out doing the work. And sometimes a lot of these beginning stages of movements, they look a little bit messy. There's not a lot of organization. Things are sort of grassroots. Um, you, you know, so in, in a lot of ways, the leader is sort of learning on the job. You'll find a lot of times there's a lot of innovation. Uh, in other words, they're inventing things maybe that had not been done before or new techniques or new methods or new ways of doing things that had not been tried before, especially in Christian-type movements. One of the things you'll also find is always, whenever there's a fresh move of God, music always seems to follow. Always. I mean, this is always true. I mean, Martin Luther, we don't ever really think about this that much, but Martin Luther was the guy who started the Protestant Reformation. He wrote a lot of songs. He started writing a lot of songs and singing those songs. And those songs became sort of the main songs of the church. That happens traditionally. Even uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, some of the most prolific songwriters of all time, they're part of a movement called the Great Awakening. We'll look at this in a little bit. God used them to write a lot of music. It's interesting because the music these guys wrote were literally songs that were sung according to the tombs, uh, tunes of songs taken out of the bars. Right? You know, you imagine some dude at a piano, he's like, dun, 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 dun. You know, and then you got some guy singing. But rather than singing like secular lyrics, uh, they're singing about Jesus. And that was because of this movement. There was this movement, Christian movements, uh, songs oftentimes accompany these movements. Uh, what happens traditionally, sort of the next phase from this movement life cycle, it goes on into sort of a structuring. This is, this is traditional. This is This is good. Um, you see this in the Bible. I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. But there's a structure. What I mean by this, as things continue to move, as things grow, as the responsibilities rise in all sorts of areas, 
um, what you have is you've got basically leaders that might have started out doing uh, work in a very general sense. They're doing everything. But as the work continues to grow and as numbers continue to rise and as responsibilities continue to peak, what, what you have is you've got a need for leaders to work smarter. You, need a, you have a specialization. Right? This is why when you walk into a restaurant, you don't see the chef uh, not only preparing the food and cooking the food and serving the food and taking care of the customer and being the busboy and also washing the dishes. It doesn't work too well. All right? You have a specialization. You have different people doing different things. It's a specialization of roles. This is part of the organizational process in a lot of ways we find ourselves in today as a church. As we have grown, when I first started out here 15 years ago, we started as a church. I used to do the bulletins. I used to, you know, type in stuff. And, you know, I mean, we didn't have websites back then. You know, I mean, we, I did a lot of stuff. But as we've grown and as my role has increased and as there have been people that have come into this church, God has raised up new leaders. There are new people that are needing to be fed and encouraged um, teaching the Word of God has taken more time. So my role has had to shift. It's the same thing you see in the Bible. Book of Acts talks about as the church grew, once they had a very large size, they could not continue to maintain the same organizational structure they had. Uh, they had Grecian widows. These were Jewish women that were basically from a Greek background. They were, they, they were, there was a lot of bigotry that was going on within the church. They felt like they were being slighted. They weren't being well taken care of. So the leaders of the church, that's Peter and James and John and the other guys, they basically rose up and said, listen, we can't, we really can't be feeding, you know, older women falafel. Every, I mean, we just can't be doing this. Uh, it's, it's not effective for us to be doing this anymore. So what we need, and again, what you're seeing is organizational structuring. They call for seven men to be raised up, full of the Holy Spirit, to take care of it. So... Sometimes people will look at this and say, structure's bad. No, structure's not bad. Ungodly structure is bad. Spirit-led structure's very good, right? Very good. You need spirit-led structure. That's where we're at as a church. We realize for us to be effective, to continue to reach out, to continue to have God do and bring and, and um, to, to manage the blessing of God properly, we realize we need structure. We need to be able to better manage people's needs, take care of it. So what we do is rather than trying to take care of everybody by doing counseling individually, we've got classes now. It might not be like it was yesterday, but we're here not for the purpose of comfort. We're here for the purpose of Jesus. And sometimes that means we've got to be uncomfortable as we grow. So what happens is from this particular phase, things can very quickly, very easily uh, sort of devolved into kind of a monument type of a stage. This is sort of, rather than like at the beginning stage where you have a movement, you've got a strong leader. Um, and what happens in sort of the structural movement, uh, as the movement sort of moves and becomes more structured, you've got the leader becoming more um, specific in his roles and the other people more specific in their roles. What you have in sort of the monument movement, if you've got strong-willed leaders that are unwilling to change, They've sort of settled into this mindset that this is how we've always done it, and this is the way that we will always do it. You've got oftentimes sort of a centralization where everything begins to focus on one particular centralized leadership rather than sharing leadership, rather than broadening leadership, rather than raising up new people. 
Um, and that's what happens. So you kind of move into sort of this monument type of a mode. Here's some examples of monuments or movements that had become monuments from history. I'll give you a couple of them. Here's the first one. Um, what happened was, you know, this is what was called the Forbidden City. I actually had the opportunity of going there. I didn't take this picture, but I had an opportunity of going back there in the China years ago. Great place. Um, what happened was during the Ming Dynasty, all right, I'm sure all of you guys know about the Ming Dynasty, yeah? Well, it lasted about 500 years. And what had happened was it was basically built around this. This was the main building that was used. It was the home of the emperor. It was the place for ceremony and political, uh, the government, everything that happened literally happened in this building. This was the spot of the Ming movement. All right? They had kids, hence the dynasty. Happened for 500 years. After about 500 years, everything changed. Hands, uh, the government changed into the different hands. So guess what this is today? It's literally called the Palace Museum. It's a museum. You go there, hang out, get a little flavor of history. You can find out what it was like 500 you know, years ago, however long ago it was. You find out what it was like a long time ago. All right? And the uh, next one, as you see, there's another example of a museum. It's called Independence Hall. Hopefully you guys all know this, right? You guys know what happened at Independence Hall? Does anybody? No? Darn. Wish I could tell you. Okay. <laughs> Signing of the Declaration of Independence. Was this a movement? Was this a movement? Yeah. About 250 years ago, it was a movement. It was a movement of freedom. It was a movement whereby... A bunch of men gathered together and realized we can do something different outside of being underneath the fingernail and the power struggles of England. So what they do is they gather together in this building, right, this building, this spot, in the middle of this movement, they sign a piece of paper saying, we basically are declaring our independence from king. That's it. King is not law. He's not our law. Might be law of England, and he's not our law anymore. We've signed a declaration of independence. That was a movement. Today, it's a monument. It's a monument. You can go there, hang out, take a look, walk around. You see the old curator walking around, or you see the custodian pushing a broom. Like, what was this like? Ah, this was a great place years ago. You know, it was a movement. Like, what is it today? It's a museum. No movement. It's just a place of memories. Okay. Uh, the next one I want you to take a look at is, again, what we talked about, touched on briefly earlier. It's called the Second, second I don't know why I can't say this properly, Second Temple Movement. Uh, again, it begins with Ezra. Ezra is uh, the guy who writes about this. But the interesting thing is, is Ezra doesn't actually show up until chapter 7. So next week, we'll actually see Ezra. So Rebbebel and Joshua and the two prophets are the ones that are really the one, main ones responsible for the building of the temple. Ezra comes on the scene next week. But Ezra writes about this, and what happens is basically Ezra goes down in the history books of Judaism as being the main guy for this whole entire movement. He is viewed by Jews with very great high honors and regard. Uh, it's actually said of Ezra that if Moses did not, was not the guy that received the Torah, God could have very easily just done the same thing with Ezra, because that's how great Ezra is. That's how they viewed Ezra. In fact, Ezra was also viewed as the father of the Sanhedrin. He was the main guy that was believed to sort of be the forefather of this movement called the Sanhedrin, Pharisees. See where I'm going with this? 
500 years later, Jesus comes on the scene. And who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. Who do they look back to and say is our father, Ezra? So what I'm trying to say is you're looking at a movement that starts out as a legitimate movement of God. God's there. And what gets even more phenomenal about this movement is this movement of the second temple. Get this. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no manna. No Aaron's rod. No Ten Commandments in the the temple. None of the stuff that was typically a part of the actual temple itself was in there. He didn't have any of this. And yet, God was there. It was just this movement of God. God's hand was upon it. God raised up Ezra to do all this and to establish this sort of be the forefather of this entire movement. And for the next you know, few hundred years or however long, things were going great. God was working. In fact, this movement sort of even branches out. It doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. No movements ever stay localized. Every movement begins to grow. You'll find that. That's one thing that's characteristic of every movement. It, there's, it's like throwing a rock into a pond. There'll be ripples that will go out further and further. And that's what happened with this movement. Was all the way back in Babylon, all the way back in Susa, actually the palace, there's a guy by the name of Nehemiah. He hears about the movement of God in Jerusalem. And he's moved because what he knows is that there's a temple and there's people who love God, who are worshiping God, but there's no building, there's no wall around the city. So everybody who's a part of this movement of God are open and susceptible prey to predators, warriors, thieves, and thugs. And Nehemiah's moved in his heart and says, I want to be a part of this movement. God raises him up to continue to cast kerosene on this fire of God that was started back in Ezra's day. But again, like I said, the sad reality is this thing devolves into a monument. So in Jesus' day, he'll say something like this in the temple. This was meant to be a house of prayer but you guys have turned it into a den of thieves. This movement became a monument. So, so what happened? Somebody's phone is ringing again. All right, let's keep moving. I want to take a look at really some reasons why movements uh, really devolve into monuments. Here's a couple things. Uh, The first of which... You might be like, are we ever going to get to Ezra? Yes, hold tight, we're almost there. All right. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Um, what happens that typically characterizes uh, monuments is they end up, end up really living off of past results, past experiences, or past successes. Monuments, that's one characteristic trait that oftentimes will mark them. Now, I'm not just simply talking about spiritual. This can even be businesses. I mean, you know, businesses that aren't doing so hot today, they're like, What's wrong with you guys? You know, and you talk to them, and like, ah, we used to sell ice cream cones for 15 cents on the street corner with a little wooden coin. But is it working today? I guess not. You know, well, maybe you need to do something differently. Maybe something else needs to change. You know, but what happens, the same is really true within Christianity. But what you'll find oftentimes is that people will live off of past successes. You see this a lot in churches. Churches will live off of past experiences, past results, past successes, and they begin to sort of live in that stage. They're locked in that era of time. They can't get out of it. 
They're stuck there. They don't want to move on. They don't want to change. They don't want to have new insight or new suggestions. Oftentimes you hear them talking a lot about glory days. You know, that was the glory days, all right? The glory days were way back then when people got off LSD, had long hair, they never showered, they played guitar, they had flowers in their hair, and they loved Jesus. Glory days. You guys, the reality is, there are no glory days. As long as we live, there will be a glory day, okay? All we have is sort of a succession of periodic glimpses of heaven shining upon us, and we get to enjoy those for brief moments. They're snapshots of what's to come. A movement becomes a monument when it tends to focus upon what happened back then. What happened way back when. How we used to do things. How we did it way back when. And, and, and there's no way of snapping out of that. It's the way Jesus puts it this way. He says, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, it'll break. Why? Because these people are committed to this old wineskin. And Jesus says, it's not about the wineskin, it's about the wine. That's the wine that's good, not the wineskin. And movements become monuments when they live in the past. The second thing I notice is this. There becomes really a lack of willingness to change and to take risks. There's a lack of willingness to change and take risks. Now, I want to try to give you sort of how this happens. I can see how this happens. When we started, we had you know, a handful of people meeting in our house. When we sort of reached you know, a high number of people back in our house. I mean, we basically had 30, 35, 40 people in our house. A lot of them were college students. Um, a lot of them literally, I think, just mooched off of us because we provided free food. And they came. It was great. It cost us maybe 35 bucks a week. We spent it. We paid for it. We just took care of it. It was just part of the whole deal. Right? We loved doing it. But I'll tell you what, if we made a bad dinner one night and the next week 10 people don't come back, no big deal. No big deal. But what happens, I think, as a church grows, and as needs grow, and as people grow, you have more and more people that require more and more handling, more and more care, more and more, you know, working and taking care of and managing and loving and take, you know, just serving and stewarding. And when you're dealing with more money that's coming in, because in order for you to take proper care of more people, you need more people who can more adequately take more adequately take care of them. So that might mean bringing more people on staff, you get more money. There are always challenges that face churches as they grow. And so what happens is people become locked into the system that says we can't make radical choices or decisions because if we do, we might lose some people. And if we lose people, we lose money. If we lose money, where are we going to be? You know what? You know where you're going to be? You're going to be at a place where you started, which is trusting God. And what happens is people fail to just take steps of faith, trust God in those moments because the stakes are higher. There's one thing, guys, I want to promise you. I'm going to promise you. You will always get, hopefully, as long as God gives me the grace to give it, you'll get Jesus and messes. That's what I can promise you from Calvary Slow. Jesus and messes. As we continue to just be and try to do what God calls us to do, Things will never always be perfect and peachy and comfortable. Because the bottom line is, is we don't worship comfort, we worship Jesus. And sometimes following Jesus means we have to make decisions. 
We have to trim things back. We have to let certain things go. We have to modify. Maybe we go to another service. Maybe we go rent another facility. Maybe we invest more money here because we are about Jesus, not comfort. That might mean it might be difficult. There's hardships. People might be like, you know, this church is always moving. I hope so. I hope so. I don't want to lose momentum and just become a monument. I want to stay in a place where as the leadership, as the people in this church vested with the care and leadership of this fellowship, that we would stay and remain open to change, open to listening to alternatives and trying to figure out how to best serve God's people in this culture, in this generation, today and here, and for years to come. That would have been a perfect spot for an amen. Or some sense of emotion. But that's where I'm going with all this, okay? The last thing is this. One of, one of the things I also find in monuments is uh, monuments oftentimes, as they grow through these sort of different devolved type of phases, you get to a place where at the top of the level of the leadership of monuments, the leadership is composed of friends, family, and founders. Friends, family, and founders. Every dead, monument type of a leadership, you got friends, family, founders. People that are part of your inner circle, people that are your sons or your daughters because they're the only ones that you can trust, and founders, because that's the dude that had the anointing 60 years ago. All right, at the top of that scale, that's what you got. And what happens oftentimes is you have the system that's very difficult to break into because you've got because you're not part of the friendship ring, you're not part of the family ring, you're not a founder. So what happens is you have older leadership that have grown and matured through the seasons of this whole thing. They're older now, much wiser, and less prone to take risks. But you got younger people rising up saying, I'm excited, love Jesus, I want to do great things for God, I'm willing to take risks. What you need are younger people to be connected with older people younger people have zeal passion willingness innovation they want to take risks got older people that are wise hopefully love jesus love their families they've lived a good life training their kids in the ways of jesus and hopefully when you couple these people together what you have is you got a system that really seeks the heart of god that says how do we keep this thing as a movement and not become a monument i'm making sense all right Next one. Here's where we go. I want to take a look at really sort of this anatomy, kind of a, this movement of God, and what this looks like. Uh, now jump into the book of Ezra. I'm going to give you a handful of these. In fact, five of them. Five things that I noticed in the book of Ezra that I think that sort of accompany this movement of God that's taking place here in the book, here in this chapter, that really, I think, had it continued to stay in this way, maybe things would not have devolved to the point where Jesus would have pronounced his curse upon them 500 some odd years later. Okay, here's the first one. Unity. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 6 says, and they offered at the dedication of the house of God according to the number, and it goes through a series of a bunch of uh, offerings that, that we had read, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as for a sin offering, all Israel, uh, 12 goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, what I want you to notice about this is that they offered these 12 goats. Why? Because, as it tells us, each goat represented a tribe of Israel. Before Israel was taken off into captivity, it was divided. The nation, 
They were, they were a nation divided. They had been divided for hundreds of years between the north and the south. It was divided between uh, Israel and or, or Samaria and Judah, or Israel and Judah. And each of them had their own perspective capitals, their ways of doing things, their own temples, really, the way that they would worship. And so both of which had been at civil war for hundreds of years. God takes them away to captivity. They come back. They get swept up into this movement of God. And the first thing that happens is unity. They realize we are not a divided nation. We are actually united. God has brought us back together. Not as individual, quarreling tribes, but as one united nation under God. It's amazing. This is what happens. This is a part of the movement. It, it causes you to think of some of the statements that Jesus says as he prays. He prays for the unity of the saints. You even read about this in the book of Acts. It says that, you know, when they had these quarrels and there were cultural issues they struggled with, but what you have at the end of the day, all throughout the book of Acts, it'll say things like this, and they were of one heart, they were of one mind, and the Spirit of God was upon them, and fear spread all the people. Not like they were all freaked out and afraid of them, but they just recognized there's something unique about this group of people. Why? Because they were united. <laughs> I don't know where modern-day evangelicalism is going to go, all right? Honestly, I think it needs to die. I don't have time to explain why, but <laughs> sorry. Email me, cuss me out later. But what I'm trying to say is this, is I think it needs to die. I think what's happened in the modern day church is we've become so fragmented. We are about, for the most part, modern day evangelicalism. We are about a series of moralistic behavior that gets represented by a president and we fragment into all sorts of different sectarian groups. And somehow we've lost sight of the teachings of Jesus that says, all of my sheep I will draw to myself. They'll be one. Praise for their peace. Praise for their unity. That's what happened. This movement. These guys were united. It's an amazing thing. After hundreds of years of really deep-rooted bitterness and hatred, because of this movement of God, they united. The second thing I noticed is this. Next verse, in about verse 18, it says, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the, fourth, of the first month, the return exiles kept Passover. Notice what it says, they kept the Passover, but they did all this according to the, the book. The book. Oh yeah, the Bible, I forgot about that. Yeah, the Bible. We need the Bible. I mean, it wasn't like these guys got together and like, hmm, let's cast lots and figure out what we should do. Anybody got a good idea? Let's vote on it. It's not how they operated. They went back to the book. They said, what does the book say? What does the book teach? Movements today that challenge the book. Movements today that tend to focus primarily on critiquing, challenging, uh, deconstructing the book are literally sewing together their noose for their own death. I don't know how else to put it. The book has to be central. This is part of the movement of God. Every time there's ever been a movement of God since then, the book has always come out. The Reformation came about 
because of the book. The Great Awakening came about because of faithful men like Jonathan Edwards and the Wesley brothers and Whitfield preaching the book. The book. Third one is this. Purity. Here's what it says in verse 20. And the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves together. All of them were clean. These guys just realized there's something about when God was there, God was on the move, they thought, our God is holy. Therefore, we must be holy. I want to make a distinction here. This is not about moralistic purity. Okay? I think what happens oftentimes in movements, churches have, they can get rid of the book, they can get rid of unity, I guess what, one thing they always hold on to, purity. They always have a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's all about being clean. You know what else is ridiculously clean? Museums, right? right? The old dude, he's walking around his baseball cap backwards. He's listening to his tape deck. He's like, I got to keep this place clean, Right? Churches that only focus on purity and drop the book in unity just are on the verge of becoming really just a museum. The third thing is this, or the fourth thing is this. In uh, verse 20 it says this, And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb and all the returned exiles and their fellow priests for themselves, and they eaten. it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So they slaughtered their Passover lamb. What's significant about this is I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that in the New Testament, the New Testament writers said that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus was central. They realized that the most significant thing that they can commemorate and remember was that God took them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into covenant with himself. This is why Jesus becomes so significant, guys, is because Jesus is part of this movement. Here's what I want you to see, why Jesus is so significant. What happens was that even though the rest of the world, when you, when you really boil it down, every single hu- human being on this planet is really about securing a name for himself. Right? It's about developing a movement. I mean, whether it be, I want my kids to go on and on and on and have good, have good kids and they keep going on, or whether it be about you as a businessman, you're trying to make sure that your business keeps going on and on and on forever so that it would be a name for yourself or whatever it is, you fill in the blanks. It's about really, when it boils down to it, we want some sort of a movement, we want some sort of a kingdom that will go on and on and on. And when in reality, at the end of the day, what happens is you've got Every single kingdom will rise and fall. It'll be forgotten. I mean, every Ming dynasty comes to an end. All right? Every uh, Roman Empire has its conclusion. All right? At the end of the book, the end. Flip the back cover. It's over. All right? That's what happens in this life. The same is true for your life. But what happens is Jesus steps into our world to begin this movement this movement whereby he comes in in the humiliation of a child into a manger, lives his life, gets confronted by sin, by temptation. He never sins, though. He always fights it, always keeps it off, always remains holy and pure, all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. He dies for you and I. 
Just before Jesus dies, he comes into the town of Jerusalem, and there's this radical commemoration or, or, or beginning of a movement. Everybody lays palm branches down. They shout, Hosanna. What they were recognizing was that the movement is on. The king, the Messiah, the king who will have a kingdom that will never end is coming into our city, right? And he will be coming to a city near you, right? That's the whole idea. Then Jesus dies. Everybody is thrown for a loop on this one. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But the people that do get it, the people that do understand it, who have eyes to see, ears to hear, when Jesus rises again from the dead, they begin to realize this was all a part of the divine movement of God to take people who are dead in their sins and trespasses in their rebellion against God and by grace forgive them and bring them into a kingdom that will never have an end. That's the gospel. I mean, isn't that amazing? That's the movement that Jesus brings about. Thank you, that was awesome. And that's the movement that Jesus is even still to this day doing. Okay? The last thing is this. Jesus has to be central. He has to be central. Churches that become focused primarily on causes or just mere events or mere preaching to just make you feel better about yourself or trying to take care of felt needs and somehow use Jesus as a means to help you feel better about yourself are really not exalting Jesus as ultimate but they're actually exalting felt needs as ultimate. Jesus is just the means to get there. Okay? You understand that? The church has to be about promoting Jesus and his kingdom. That's what was happening. The last thing I see is this. Verse 22. It says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And the Lord made them joyful. They turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them and they, so that they aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The last thing I noticed about this group of people caught up in this movement is they were so joyful. They were happy. Are you happy? Do you know Jesus? I mean, are you caught up in his movement? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you know what it's like to be cleansed? Do you know what it's like to be lost but then found? Do you know what it's like to go from death into life? Do you know what it's like to be an enemy of God and then have God welcome you and say, now you're my son? Do you know what that's all about? That's joy. That's joyful. That's amazing. When the church experiences that and lives that and feels that, things happen. Things happen. Here's some examples I want to finish with in terms of some movements of God throughout history just to show that this continues even in the church. One example is this, the uh, Presbyterian movement. It was began, or begun by a guy by the name of John Knox. All right, if you're ever familiar with Presbyterian churches today, uh, primarily Reformed, it all started with a guy by the name of John Knox. John Knox was a man who lived in Scotland. I've had the opportunity of going to Scotland several times. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. I love it. I love Scotland. There's a place called the Royal Mile. It's right, be, uh, right where John Knox had a church. There's a church called St. Giles. St. Giles, it was right there on this place called the Royal Mile. Um, up the hill was the castle. At the bottom of the hill was uh, Queen Mary of the Scots, her little house. And right in between uh, these two monstrous monuments of uh, Edinburgh's power was the church that John Knox preached at. And John Knox was this 
faithful man of God that proclaimed boldly and loudly the word of God, so much so that even Queen Mary, like, shook in her boots. She wanted to hear him preach because she was like, that dude believes what he says. I mean, it was a movement of God. It spawned another movement of the covenanters, this great move of people that just loved God, and a lot of them were put to death. I had the opportunity with my wife. We actually sat in this chair that was a really renowned chair, um, and we, we have got a picture of ourselves sitting in there. And it was the place where John Knox would have been to stand behind the pulpit or to see the pulpit where John Knox was. It was amazing. This is hundreds of years ago. This was a movement of God through this guy named John Knox, which really tapped into the wave of a movement that came out of Geneva through, Luther, or through uh, Calvin, which came from a wave of a movement of God that came from Luther out of Germany. And this is a move of God that continued to spawn and grow and branch out and reach out for the glory of the gospel. So what had happened was, at some point, this movement, you know, sort of comes to a slow, dying end, and, you know, you go there today to St. Giles Cathedral, it's just a monument. That's all it is. It's just distant memories of a great move of God. But from that particular movement in England, there's a lot of people that were stirred. Their hearts were moved by this sort of modern uh, new type of Protestant faith that was being infused in people's hearts, a group of people that loved God. They wanted to purify the Church of England. That's what they called themselves. Ah, Puritans. Right. Actually, the others called them that. And then they end up having to leave. They end up coming to our country. And what happens is one of the greatest of all the Puritans, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, the most brilliant mind America has ever produced, hands down. I love absolutely love Jonathan Edwards. When I die, when I go to heaven, after worshiping Jesus for a little bit, I'm going to go track down Jonathan Edwards. I want to hang out with the dude. I want to ask him questions. He was a brilliant mind. Love Jonathan Edwards. All right? He preached the gospel. He invested himself into young men. Several of those men was a guy named George Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And these guys went around America, uh, throughout Georgia, throughout uh, the colonized states, and they preached the gospel. George Whitfield would say he would preach to upwards of 20,000 people. No microphones. Some of you are like, I think you can do that, Brian, because you yell a lot. Maybe. And I even have a microphone. He would preach for hours, sermons that would last sometimes up to two to three hours preaching. At the end of the day, after preaching nonstop, he would go home, and for the next several hours, he would cough up blood. These guys died. The average lifespan of these circuit preachers were 33 years of age, and they died. They would give their body until it just kicked over and stopped working. They were part of a movement called the Great Awakening. I love this. Some of the uh, restrictions that they had or the uh, prerequisites they had, if you wanted to be a part of this movement, the Great Awakening, for the circuit preachers, here's what it is. I love this. One, they had to be converted. Got to make sure you're a Christian. You love Jesus? Yes? All right, go for it. Second thing is they had to be able to keep the rules. Maybe you didn't know this, but Jonathan, uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, they were the founders of modern-day Methodism. They're like, wait a minute, I thought Methodism. Do they keep the book? Do they love the book? No. If you've been watching the news, Methodism's under great challenge right now. Is the book even important? How did this great movement become the monument it is today? Especially when you got guys like Jonathan 
uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley at the beginning of this. These guys would say, one's got to be saved. Two, he's got to be able to keep our rules. Three, he's got to be able to have a horse. Does he have a horse? No horse? Sorry. Go find a horse. Then he can join our team. Last one is this. He's got to be able to preach. It's just, as these guys would do this, they would ship him out. They'd go preach. Then they'd die. And that was it. They'd find a new person. Keep doing that. This was a move of God, which today, for the most part, is just in our distant memories. Here's the last one I'm going to touch on. You want a good case in point of this in modern history? It's called the Jesus People Movement. Um, back in the 70s, back in the late 60s, there's a movement. God raised up. Um, and sometimes people ask, are you part of the Calvary Chapel Movement? Yes, we are. We dropped the chapel because it sounds like a place where dead people go. All right, we are part of the movement. Um, but the bottom line is, there's a guy by the name Chuck Smith. God raised up way back in the late 60s. He ends up taking over a church. And in this church that he's pastoring, um, God starts bringing these hippies, all right? Hippies, just people that smell, they don't take showers, they sing a lot of weird songs, have flowers in their hair, and they end up trading in their LSD for Bibles. And they start just loving God. And this movement spreads. Music comes out of this. Innovations come out of this. All sorts of amazing things spawn out of the Jesus people movement back in the late 70s, early 80s. Familiar with the vineyard? It came out of Calvary Chapel movement. And that spawned, that became a major church planting movement. So you've got Calvary chapels, you've got vineyards, major church planting movements. But I'll tell you what, Calvary's been going now for almost 40 years. Pastor Chuck, uh, who's the leader of the group, he's very old, probably died, probably not too much longer. He's, in, he's been around working very hard for many, many years. But there's going to come a point, you want a good case point, looking at this case study, where's Calvary going to go? A lot of people speculating, a lot of people trying to figure it out. I really don't care. I'm up here. I'm 150, 200 miles away from home central. I just love St. Louis, and I love you guys. I don't really care how that's going to impact us or affect us, but what, there's a lot of people looking at and saying, where's it going to go? Is it going to become a movement? Is it going to stay a movement, or is it going to become a monument? Is it going to become a museum? Where's it going to go? I don't know. It's hard to tell. All I can simply do is look at us. Bottom line is, is as a church, we're here, we're seeing God blessed, we're seeing people's lives changed, we're seeing churches planted, we're seeing people sent out all around the world, all around the world. I, I think we're part of a movement. I think God's doing something here in San Luis. People come through here, they get saved, the Word of God teaches them, trains them, they're changed, they want to do something for God. This is not just young people this is happening to. A lot of it's young people. But it's not just young people. Their lives are being changed. They want to do something great for God. It's a movement. God is doing something. The bottom line is this. There's going to come a day I'm going to die, or I'll move on, or I'll be gone. God forbid, if, you, if I'm gone, and you ever come to some place that's centralized, we ever have like a main headquarters, like a main building, and you see a velvet painting with my face on it, you've got my permission right now. Take it down and burn it. It's not about me. It's not about what I did back in 93. I don't care about 93. It's not about what happened back then. It's about what God is doing today, right now. How are we a part of this movement? Last example, Church of Ephesus. Book of Acts describes this phenomenal, amazing revival. Paul the Apostle is there. People are getting saved. Lives are being changed. Hearts are being opened. All right? Leaders are being raised up. It becomes a center in Asia Minor along the coastline of modern-day Turkey. 
Paul writes a letter to Ephesus. Right? It's called the, book, the letter epistle of Ephesians. One of the most phenomenal, deep, spiritually just amazing letters. And he writes it to these people because there's something going on there. Jesus writes a letter to these people. In the book of Revelation, he says this. He says, I know your works. I know your labor of love. I know what you guys are doing. You guys have a good budget, significant budget. Money's going out to missions. It's going out to good things. You're working hard. You're striving. Lives are being changed. People are coming to know Christ. People are being sent out to tell other people about Christ. But it says, I got one thing against you. If you don't change this one thing, I'm going to pull my lampstand, meaning I planted the church, but I'll unplant the church. If you don't change this one thing, he says, it's that you've left your first love. Today you go to Asia Minor, and ancient city of Ephesus is a monument. It's gone. Whatever happened, it just didn't pay heed. And it became a monument, a museum, a place of ruins. Guys, in summary, Jesus is moving. He's moving. All right, he's moving. There's a great work that's happening. Jesus is moving. Lives are being changed. Peter talks about this. He says there's this cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And all of you are part of this building that Jesus himself is building. He says some reject Jesus. Some accept him. Some trust him. But he ultimately goes on to just simply say this is a movement. So you're here and today you're either either part of this movement, meaning you've trusted Christ, you love him, you're serving him, you've been forgiven of your sin, and you're being moved and used by God. Or... You had something to happen in your life years ago, quote-unquote glory days. You look back, and you're like, I remember five years ago, I prayed the prayer, and something happened. What happens today? Where are you at today? What about now? Where's your life? Where's your love for Jesus today? You're on the verge of becoming a monument. Or you're here, and you're not part of the movement at all. You're not a Christian. But I would urge you today, trust Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Call upon the mercy of God. Let me tell you, the reason why this movement is so good, because as I said earlier, everybody in this world is looking for something permanent to stake their little flag on, to put their little banner over and say, that's mine. History says that that can't happen. Every time you put your little flag up, history smacks it down. You can't keep something forever But there's one thing in terms of a movement that will always last forever. It's Jesus. Sets up a kingdom that will have no end. I urge you, get caught up in that kingdom. Get caught up in that movement. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish. We're going to sing some songs of worship to recognize Jesus. Guys, I encourage you. We've got a great God. He is so alive here, moving, wants to change lives, wants to change you. All right? So we're going to worship, and I encourage you. I mean, we're, we, you know, I, I know tradition. I say this to you guys all the time. I love you, but I say this in jest, but I mean it too. It's okay to sing loud. It's okay to clap. It's, okay to, it's actually okay to clap throughout a song longer than, like, the first five beats. It's okay. And it's okay to even clap synchronized, you know? Clapping off beats, not okay. But it's okay to do that. It's okay to sing joyfully to Jesus. We've got a great God. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. If you're one of our guests, please don't give anything. We just want you to know Jesus. That's it.
We hope you come away, leave here having Jesus in your heart, having an assurance that you've been forgiven and washed and cleansed. We're going to sing a few songs of worship, and then we'll dismiss you guys, wrap it up. But I want you guys to just know the power of this movement that Jesus began 2,000 years ago, continues today. I want you to be caught up in that. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray for the work that you've begun here, that we would stay on track, stay the course, keep the cross central, be unified, love one another, be joyful, be pure. God, help us. We need your help. There's way too many temptations to veer to the left, to the right. God, this church is not about a person. It's not about a name or a logo or a slogan. It's about Jesus. Worship Jesus.